0: Thank you, Jessica, for that reminder of an undying love, I believe, is the song. I haven't sang that one for a while. Well, good morning. It's a special treat to gather once again as a church family. We, many of you were here yesterday, just across the field, um, at the pavilion, enjoying a lot of good food and fellowship. Now we get to come together again and enjoy one another's fellowship in the presence of God. I appreciate everybody's presence here this morning. The um, the opening worship song couldn't have been more fitting, and I believe Shane picked those songs out. Is that right? No? You guys picked them out? What did you know? Did you read the bulletin? Well, the sermon title was One Thing, and, and uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Noah picked the One Thing song uh, to open us up in. So God definitely has a message for us this morning. But... We are in Psalm 27 this morning, and for our Communion Sunday series, we've been studying the Psalms. And as you know, the Psalms are basically a songbook of the Old Testament. They were lyrics put to music for the purpose of extolling God, praising God. And they're just full of truth and edification to God's people. Our last psalm that we looked at was Psalm 147, and we learned that it's fitting for God's people to worship Him and to praise Him. It's also fitting for God to be worshipped and praised because He is God. And that psalm may have struck a chord with many of us because it also challenged us in the act or, or the question of do we worship God because of His usefulness to us? Or do we worship God because He's God, because He's lovely, because He's beautiful, because He's pure, and He's holy? And this morning song Psalm goes takes us a different route, but in essence brings us back to that same place. And who are we before God, and who is God to us? So we're going to look at Psalm 27. It's only 12 verses. It's packed. It could go a lot of different directions, but I'm going to really try hard just to focus on the one thing that the psalmist focuses on in this psalm. And he's going to talk about his struggles. He's going to talk about life being hard. He's going to talk about being oppressed and the difficulties. And his difficulties are probably a little more difficult than anything I know that I have faced or probably that most of us have faced and yet, in his difficult life, he has learned to turn to just one thing that enables him to find peace, that enables him to rise above the hardships of everyday life. So that's what we're going to be trying to focusing, focus in on this psalm. It's something that calms his fears, uh, something that calms his anxieties. So we ask ourselves a question before we read the Scripture. Or do you have struggles in your life? Now, who doesn't? I mean, we all have struggles. Are there things about life that maybe you wake up every day and there's certain fears that you have to face? We wake up every day with particular anxieties, things that have a tendency to stress us out. And we we, we constantly face these things and we, we try to settle into this place in life where it's not so hard and It's not so anxious. Well, there's a reason that life is hard. And then there's a remedy for rising above it. And if we have ears to hear this morning, we will hear that remedy from the Lord. So let's read our psalm. I'm going to go ahead and read all 12 verses or 14 verses, but not touch on everything this morning. But it's important to understand the big picture of the context. So let's read Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Of the Lord, in the land of the living, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Well, you read this psalm, and you immediately realize, and you've probably already realized it in your own life, but that is that even God's anointed servants are not exempt from the trials. And the hardships of this world, though, unfortunately, there is some false teaching today that says that if you become a Christian and you live a certain way or your faith is great enough, you will be spared all the hardship. And that's not true. They, even God's servants, are not able to sidestep the universal effects of sin and the curse that we brought upon ourselves through the rebellion of our hearts. And so David, God's anointing king, you know, he's a quite unique individual. He's close to God. God's favor is all over him. And yet, on the other hand, he faces tremendous pressures and tremendous hardships. And we think we have problems. But the thing that he woke up with every morning, (laughs) I think, is even greater, I know, than anything I face in my day. He wakes up as king, God's anointed king, with a target on his back. He wakes up with assassins after him. That's what happens when you're a leader of that magnitude, especially in that day uh, and in our day as well. Uh, we have bodyguards today. We have armies that protect our president and kings and leaders. And it was the same in that day. And so he would wake up wondering, would be, would this be the day that an arrow might find my heart will this be a day that my blood may be spilled what does day, today have in store for me also people constantly trying to undermine him through gossip through spreading lies anything they can do to bring him down because he is the enemy there's this always this threat of war against he and his people still fighting over the land to this very day who gets it? Who has a right to it? And there were, there were even times where armies were amassing to take him on and challenge there, him. There, there were people not so far away that were being trained. Young men were being trained to take him out, to take his army out, to overcome him. And that was what his day looked like. And on top of this were the daily responsibilities that he had as a husband. Daily responsibilities of a father. And then just as a leader over God's people. So if anybody should have anxieties, if anybody should have fears that just gripped you and incapacitated you, you would think that it would be David. And yet, somehow, he is not afraid. And he's not all balled up in a knot of anxiety to where it keeps him from doing his job, where it keeps him from pressing forward step after step. As a matter of fact, he even finds joy in his life in verse three, though an army encamp against me. And we haven't we didn't wake up this morning with an army in our in our yards that is ready to take us on in battle. But he says Even if I wake up and there's an army out there against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, I will be confident. So what does he have? What is his attitude? What is his strategy? How is he able to do that? Because I know there are things that I face in life that scare me. And I have my share of anxieties, and I would say my confidence is probably at an all-time low in some areas of my life. So what is it that David has? What has he found in his life? What is this one thing? He kind of, I read this psalm, has me on the edge of my seat. Because if it works for him, one of God's anointed, a believer, then maybe it'll work for me too. Maybe it will work for you. So all I want to do is follow David's line of reasoning. Again, we could go a lot of different directions that I won't go this morning. Just want to follow his line of reason, how it takes us to this one thing. And the first thing we see that David is involved in is battle. His life is a battle. And we don't wake up dodging bullets. Uh, but we wake up with our share of anxieties, do we not? We, we wake up with our share of fears. Uh, we have also been, I'm sure, at some point in our lives, uh, victims of gossip and lies. And it's painful. Uh, people maybe that try to undermine us, take us out, smear our reputation. David acknowledges that he is in a battle and that there are burdens of life and they are very, very difficult. They're out there. He doesn't deny them. But what he's saying is that life doesn't just have battles, but life is a battle. Think about David's life. His whole life has been a battle. I mean, he he used to fight the sheep when he was just a kid and had sheep duty. Then he fought the giant. And he fought to try to spare his life from Saul. And now as a king. I mean it's just one battle after another. It's it's not life isn't just individual battles, but all of life is a battlefield and that's what that's the picture that he's painting for us. That's what he's realizing about his life. To be on this earth is to be on a battlefield. We touched on this just a little bit in Ephesians. When we talk about putting on the armor of God, why would we need as believers to put on the armor of God? Why would the God of heaven tell us to do that? Because we live in and on a battlefield. I mean, think about the things that we have to fight every day. <clears throat> we hear the word fight just about every day in one context or another. Somebody I might say I fight traffic every day just to get to. And from work, uh, I fight. I fight to keep my lawnmower going. I fight to keep my cars on the road. I fight to keep my home maintained. I, I fight the battle of the bulge and I fight my health. I'm trying to fight that all the time. And I I fight my finances just to balance my checkbook. I'm not always sure what that's going to turn out like. And I'm I'm fighting for my marriage and I'm fighting for my kids. I'm fighting to, to, to stay afloat. I'm fighting for my sanity. I'm fighting not to give in to my sinful tendencies to ruin my life once again. I'm fighting to do the right thing. And we have all of these battles that we fight every day. There's always something. What does it mean? It means that we live on a battlefield. And that is our life. What's a battle? It's of course it's the place of conflict. When you're when you're in that battle, it's you're 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 in a place that you have to remain alert all the time because there's constant pressure, there's constant opposition. Somebody wants to dominate, somebody wants to Eliminate, uh, somebody wants to overpower or something, there's something there and you're constantly subject to, to scheming and, and manipulating, positioning. And so you always have to be on your guard because you could get hurt in one way or another, whether it's your, your heart, your spirit or physical pain. That's what makes it a battlefield. You're, you're not at all at ease. And so that's one of the causes for underlying tension because you always just have to are waiting for the next bullet, waiting for the next fiery arrow or dart, the next comment, the next backhand, whatever it might be. When you're in battle, the thing that's usually on your mind the most is safety, shelter. That's what the psalmist says, Shelter. Paints a picture of God's tent, this this covering that He wants to be under. The shelter that God can provide. It's it's safety. A lot of times during these hard battles that we fight, we, we just want that place of safety. We don't want to be on our guards all the time. We want to be replenished. We want to find rest. So that's what we work towards what to what the soldiers often talk about when they're on the battlefield i've never faced real battle in that way in the military but i know what i would be talking about and i've watched enough movies to know the real truth of what happens on war they talk about home they talk about their families why cuz that's what their minds are drawn to they they're drawn to yeah you know right here it's hard we got this battle to fight and i'm in it but when the bullets aren't flying, I'm going to talk about my home. Back in Virginia, what it's like, dog in the yard. I'm going to talk about my family. Why? Because that's the place that, that isn't a battlefield. That's the place that's safe. It's the place you can go and kick back and you don't even have to have your sidearm on you. It's a place where your people aren't after you to get you all the time and gossip after you and, and put you down and belittle you or take your life. They're they're building you up. You you, you can eat and watch TV or go to work or drive around or walk in your yard. You don't have to worry about these kind of things. It's it's that safe place. You're not on your alert, wondering when's the next hit going to come. Battlefield's just the opposite of this sheltering, safe atmosphere. You're always being confronted, pushed, moved, opposed. And it's very clear that wherever you are, it's not home. It's not your safe place. So David's saying that his life, that's what it is. It's a battlefield. No matter where he goes, people talking about him, they want to eat him up, he says. They're after my flesh. (laughs) That's how bad they hate him. Out to get him, one way or another. Then it, it really hits home when he's thinking about his life as a battlefield it really hits home in verse 10, because then he says, for my mother and my my father and my mother have forsaken me. And and, you, and you, what, what he's getting at is that even the place that should be the safest, that one place that you should always have isn't always there for you. And it's not that he's saying, oh, this this was um, he was a victim of child abuse. That's not the point that David's making. The point that, that he's making is that even these places on earth that we can find some shelter, places that should be safe, church, home, whatever, they have their limitations. Even those places change. Our homes take on different dynamics, you know. I'm at the age now where most of my kids are gone. So the whole dynamic of what did it mean to be home 10 years ago isn't the same for me. And eventually. My parents, you know, dad's 90, mom's 89. uh, I still get security from them. They still offer something to me in their old age, and they're not going to be there for me all the time. Life. Home, The safe things in my life, they're not constant. They're always going to be changing. And so David is saying, even those things, you can't even always count on those things. I guess he's realizing in his case, maybe his parents have passed by this time. They're not going to be there forever. They will be removed. So then what? Well, because life... Is a battle. We have these struggles. We have to wonder about these things. We have to ask the hard questions. Then what? What do you do when even the things of this life that you were counting on to be that one thing to bring you solace, to to bring your soul peace? What do you do when they don't deliver? And there are lots of pressures today. You ever feel like sometimes I've heard the expression... And experience it. sometimes it just seems that life is out to get you. I mean, nothing goes right. And sometimes it's personal and sometimes it's just totally impersonal. It's just one thing after another. And it just seems like I'm targeted sometimes. And I know the same with you. And that's because life is out to get you in a sense. And, of course, we know about our enemy, Satan. God tells us, he is out to get you. He wants to destroy you. Not to mention, we do live under a cursed world that we deserve because we're sinners. Hasn't been restored yet. And and we got the sin in our own hearts. You put all these things together and sometimes we're our, our own worst enemy, are we not? But you put all that together and it just seems like, you know... Life is hard and it's out to get us, it seems like. No matter what stage we're in, we have pressures. Even little kids, they have pressures. We know that. Our our cherished little ones. We don't want them to, but they do. So no matter what stage of life we're in, we often come up with these scenarios and we think, if I could just, then my soul would be at rest. If If I could, if I could just. Afford my own home instead of sinking all my money into rent and, and decorate it the way I want it. Then my life would be so much better. If I, if I could just hang in there and be strong enough and determined enough to work that 80 hours, that 100 hours a week and get my little nest egg. Then I'll be able to relax. I'll, I'll have it. My soul will be at Peace. If I can just get into that school, if I can just get this particular job or that group of people will just be my friends, if I can just hang out with them, then my soul will be at rest. I'll be I'll be set. If I could just find a spouse, that would be the answer. If I could just change the spouse I found, just change the spouse I found to be more like I want them to be, then there will be so much less. I'll finally be at home. I'll finally be under that tent of shelter where I can let my guard down. So we're looking for ways for our troubles to be over. We're, We're looking for ways to escape the battlefield. We want to find places. We want to find people. We want to find experiences that give us that little piece of heaven, you might say. There's that void. Of course, our politicians promise to fill that void if we just cast our vote in their direction. Whatever it is, money, I, got, I can change the law to, you know, to, to get put more money in your pocket. Or oppression, I can change the laws where you won't feel oppressed and they can promise to make things better. Um, that's how our advertising is so effective. Why is advertising so effective? Why are we constantly exposed, whether it's in the airwaves, TV, Internet, whatever, billboards? Why are we constantly exposed to advertising? Because if they can just get you to think you need this in your battle of life because it will ease your burden, they got us. And so they work really hard at trying to get us to believe that's what's missing. That's what's missing. Picture and how do they do it? Think about it. They picture this, um, this uh, picture or painting of peace, safety, acceptance, love, admiration. So you went from here to here. Don't don't drive that clunky old car or truck anymore, where people are sneering at you when you pull up to the stop sign. This is what you need. This new shiny vehicle it's a place you know it's 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 luxury it's acceptance Um, your troubles will be over you need these items use this shampoo as opposed to this shampoo and your life will turn from black and white the commercials black and white before the shampoo when you use the shampoo your life is now in vivid color and all of those people that didn't even look at you, didn't cast their gaze in your direction, it totally ignored you, didn't knew, know that you even existed, you wash your hair one day with this shampoo. Man, it's fluffy, and the whole world is just can't keep their eyes off of you. Amen. <laughs> If you can just have this, if you can just make it to this place, if you can just do this, ah, there's no battle here. There's no tension here. There's no fear here. There's no anxiety here. You just need this. How come that's not David's answer? It's not where David tells us to look, it's not where David's soul goes. Because he's learned from the school of hard knocks, I would imagine. And he's also, of course, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just David's experience. It's God's wisdom coming to us. And he doesn't turn to those things because he knows that in the end they're futile. They don't really exist. They're not the end of what our hearts are really seeking after it's not it's not really the place that our souls can find that rest and if we spend our lives just working a little harder or or expending a little more energy or sacrificing ourselves in whatever way it is just to get that little piece of heaven that little nest egg that little whatever it is that we think we need there's a sense in which david is saying there's no such place That you can totally feel at rest. Even your safe place of the home. Sometimes you got to be on your guard. Even the safe place as hard as we try. The church. What's the church filled with? Sinners that are being sanctified. But even at church. And we want to try to make it a safe place. But even at church sometimes. you ever come in here and you're on your guard a little bit. Got to be careful what you say, what you don't say. It's just you're just not all the way there, even at home. Unfortunately, some people's home life, it's not home. And they're looking for home somewhere else because their home that mom and dad isn't safe or brother and sister isn't safe or whatever's going on there. It's not safe and they need to find safety. So they're looking for shelter somewhere else. So these things that we have that are blessings, family, church and so forth, that they are God's intended blessings. But David's bottom line is they have their limits. And we'll always find ourselves in some way or another kind of back in the fight, no matter how promising they may seem, no matter how spectacular they may seem. Guess what? Even when we have them, we find they're not quite spectacular enough. Because my heart wants more. My soul wants more. And it's still, it's not at ease like I thought it would be when I had this thing or went to that place or experienced this thing. We're still waiting for something. And yet here's David and he's saying, even though I got, I could take my binoculars, so to speak and i could look and i could see thousands of my enemies and and they all want my my blood i i don't fear doesn't make me anxious and he even walks with confidence every step how can this be and how can he even experience joy what is that one thing well obviously david has wrestled with the big questions of life this kind of have to assume that to to come to the one thing conclusion that we're going to look at. You have to wrestle with the big questions of life, especially when hardship comes, when it presses in at you from every angle. We have to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is life really about? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? Got to answer those questions. Is there more to life in this? Are there higher reasons for things to happen? What is life all about? David has already answered these questions. What is right and wrong? How do I even know who is my true enemy? Boy, talk about the lines being blurred in our culture today. That's a sidetrack. But what is right and wrong anymore? Does anybody know? There's so much confusion. David, David knew. He answered these questions. Yes, I know who's on the right side. And I know who's on the wrong side. And he knows that life is bigger than even the battlefield. How does he know that? Because he knows God. He's answered those big questions. Life is bigger than this battlefield that I'm on. And that I'm in. So having answered all that, he concludes with this one thing, one thing, verse four, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to do what to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Here's another way of saying the exact same thing in verse eight. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's how he has not fallen prey to the prevailing attitudes of the day. He hasn't fallen prey to uh, take on the fighter attitude. Life's a battle, so I'm just going to be bigger and better than the other person and more cutthroat and put you down and beat you to it. Step over whoever I need to step over. He hasn't fallen fall prey to denial. Oh, life is all good. And just denying the sin in the dirt that some do. He hasn't fallen fall prey to apathy. Eh, who cares anyway? It's not even worth it. As long as I can get in my little camouflage and get over here in the corner of the battlefield and, and be as inconspicuous as possible and just do my own thing. That's all I need in life. And he hasn't fallen prey to total defeat. What's the use I'll just let people walk all over me. He wants God. As a matter of fact, his greatest desire is that that God has him and that he has God. And then he wants something that isn't even allowed in his day. In verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You you know the Old Testament. You know Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You You don't live in the temple. I mean, you visit there, you come and you worship and you visit. And even that you you got to be a certain ranking in the priesthood to go to get close to God. And the holy of holies once a year. The very holy place ministry takes place and he's saying out, but I want to be in there. I want to live there. That's where I want to live. It wasn't allowed in his day. Technically speaking, it wasn't possible. So what's he saying? Here's how Timothy Keller puts it, kind of wrapping this, wrapping this up. He says, here's David's thought process. God's home is the home I've been looking for in every home that I've ever built. God's beauty is the beauty I've been looking for in every bit of music, in every bit of art, in every bit of romance I've ever had. God's face is a face I've been looking for in every encounter and relationship I've ever had. This is what life is about. And I found it. I have this. I really have the only home possible. If I have this, I have the only safety possible. I'm going to go into the house of the Lord. I'm going to gaze on his beauty for in the day of trouble. He will keep me safe in his dwelling. The only home there is. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. The only hiding place there really is. All their hiding places, all their shelters, all their efforts to get away from the battles of life are futile. So he's saying there's this deep lust of the heart to be touched by God, to be in the presence of God, to be loved and to to be kept safe from God because God's so much bigger than these other things. and, And as good as some of them are, they failed us. And so it's longing for that thing that won't fail us. And by looking at other beauties and, and buildings and homes and, and, and relationships, it still leaves us with this little bit of an itch It needs to be scratched. And David's saying, I, I found that one thing. I found it. And it's only there that my soul is really safe where there's no weapons. When I'm in the presence of God, there's no weapons. There's nothing against me. And I'm, I'm accepted and I'm loved. It's the one robe that can keep me warm in the coldness of life. The one robe that can keep me safe. It's what the church fathers used to, what the church fathers called quorum Deo. Living before the face of God. Everything I do. Sleep, wake, stand, work, play, everything I do it is before the face of God. And that's David's one thing. The face of God represents the person of God. So, wait a minute, how can you live before the face of God? He's a spirit, you can't even see him. Yes, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. But he's also God the person with a personality that enters into personable relationships so that every one of His creatures has the opportunity to have a personal relationship before the face of God to get to know Him intimately. He sees us. He knows what we're up to. He knows what we're thinking. He's interested in us. The idea of face the face is... You know, you know, uh, it's what we might call face-to-face relationship. As a parent, you might have said to your kids, look at me when I'm talking to you. Don't turn around because I, I have something important or you're in big trouble or I have something important. Or, I, or when you really want to let somebody know that you truly care for them, you want them to be looking at you because your face communicates. I mean, that's where tr- real truth is is conveyed and passed back and forth. It's face to face. You also know that if relationships aren't right, what do you do? If you come into church and you're not... There's something... If I'm... Something between me and Sam, what, what are we going to kind of do? Going to avoid each other. We don't want to make contact, eye contact, because then you're obligated to say something. There's something about this face to face. It's personal. It's... It, It gets into our soul. And so God invites us to seek his face. To know him through his presence. Know him through what he communicates to us. And for us. And about us. And he sees us and he gazes on us. And he says, gaze at me know me love me communicate with me it's it's relational god's not just a force god is a person and it's possible to have a legitimate personable loving safe incredible relationship with him he reveals his person how through his word God reveals himself through his word primarily. He reveals himself uh, through worship. The presence of the Lord is often, well, it's always with us. We don't always sense it, but it's always with us because his word promises it. He communicates to us through fellowship, through church, through the saints. We learn about him and his heart through his people, the hands and feet of the body of Christ, his saints, through prayer. All of these things are His mirror. It's how we can see His face. They're His means of grace. It's how we can get to know Him and, and see His face. And what does James tell us in James chapter 1? He says, you know, you, you get before the mirror and you look at yourself. He's talking about God's Word and the law, but I'll use the same analogy. You get before the mirror, and you look at yourself, you make sure everything's intact, and then you walk away and you forget what you look like. If we walk away from the mirror of God, if we walk away from the word of God and the fellowship of the saints, church and the gathering of the saints, we walk away or neglect prayer. If we neglect our time of worship and devotion and praise, then we're losing sight of the face of God because this is his mirror. This is his revelation. It's his reflection to us. It's how we are personable with him. so we walk away from these things and and God just doesn't quite look right anymore and we lose sight of these things and we don't know if he really loves us and we don't know how reliable he is and i don't even know if this is true anymore and does this whole faith thing work God wants to meet with us so how do we get home <clears throat> how do we enjoy him to the point That the battlefield that we're on doesn't get the best of us. Well, you live before the face of God, Coram Deo. Let me just close with this example, real life example of uh, Charles Spurgeon's testimony, his personal testimony as told um, in Christian History Magazine. And I think this will help us wrap all of this up in conclusion. This is how he found home. Uh, Because of a snowstorm when he was 15 years old, his usual path to church was diverted down a side street. So for shelter, he ducked into this uh, primitive, primitive Methodist church. At that time, he was congregational. Later on, he becomes a famous Baptist preacher. So uh, he ducks into this primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street, an unknown substitute lay preacher, stepped into the pulpit and read his text, Isaiah 45:22, and he reads, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And Spurgeon later says, you know, this guy, he was, the the real pastor couldn't make it because the snowstorm, this guy, glad it was a short sermon. He didn't have a lot of words to speak, so he just kept repeating the same text and reading the same text and kind of glad he didn't go on and on. But that's what it came He says he didn't have much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. There was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only primitive Methodists can, he says. Look, look, young man, look now. Then I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. As the snow fell on my road home from that little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. And he says this later on, a reflection of his own testimony. All it says is, look, gaze, look. It doesn't say work. It it, it doesn't mean lifting a foot. It doesn't mean lifting a finger. Look to me and be saved. It doesn't say look to yourself. Look to your feelings, look to your faith, your reason, look to your religion, look to your good works. It says, look to me. He was set free and set in the presence of God, Coram Deo, because he looked at Christ and understood the gospel. He was set free up until that time, doesn't say it, but he had been working really hard for his salvation, his religion. All you had to do is gaze intently at what the person and work of Christ. And we should never stop gazing, never stop looking. And sometimes that means we've got to look away from ourselves. We've got to look away at what's happening in our lives. Just look at God and gaze and think about, fathom the work, what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And our own efforts should not be there. Because it is Christ that offers us that shelter. It's Christ that offers us that robe. And I don't have the time to, get, time to get into it, but you know, the big question of the Old Testament was, well, how do I get before the face of God? Because if I get close to God, guess what's going to happen to me? I'm a sinner. And God's really holy. The how, do, how do you get there? I want to. You get there through Christ. You know that thing that David technically couldn't do, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? That's what Christ enables us to do, to live before the face of God forever. God's object lesson in Hebrews, when Christ, at that very moment, when Christ breathed his last, the veil in the temple was rent. was that veil that kept you out of the face of God. You couldn't be before the face of God in that sense. And so that which separated man from the face of God, man's face from God's face was rent. There's no longer separation. Because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. He spilled his blood. It's God's show and tell of the gospel message. And he says, my Son died for you so you can see my face, so you can know my love, so you can live before my grace, so that every step you take and every arrow you dodge has meaning and purpose and every hit you take has meaning and purpose. My son died so that you could rise above the battlefield that you live in and rise above the pain and the hardship and the gossip and the lying and the constant opposition. And just behold my beauty and get to know me because that is home. That's what your soul really longs for. Look and believe. Believe in what? Believe in Jesus. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, descended to the day to the dead. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures and will come back again to judge the living and the dead. Believe in that and you shall find your way home. If you believe, then you have all the hope there is in the world. So. David's one thing. David's one thing is that when you can face God, you can face anything. May God bless the preaching of His Word, and uh, we will continue to worship Him in praise, and we come before. The presence of God by celebrating the Lord's Supper.